we are up to chapter 8 of a pious and elaborate treatise concerning prayer and the answer of prayer by John Brown of Lamfrey. And we're going to break chapter 8 into two because there's a lot to discuss. <clears throat> so uh, we'll be trying to get through half of it this week and half, Lord willing, next time. Um, this is a section, chapter 8 is on family prayer. The necessity and usefulness of family prayer. Remember the, um, the verse that Brown is working off of throughout the book. John 14, 13 and 14. Whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. <clears throat> so we've talked now about, the last time, the idea that the unregenerate are obliged to pray. And um, in some respects, that is a necessary consideration uh, before we get into talking about different contexts in which people are um, going to pray in concert with others when, when you have social prayer <clears throat> at the most basic level social prayer at the most basic level is manifested in family prayer. And family prayer is one of the central um, exercises that is involved in family worship. In fact, to some extent, just like we can reduce the idea of worship or devotion to this or that exercise, um, praise or covenanting. Prayer is another one of these exercises which can be said in a sense to encompass all other. So when we talk about family worship, when we talk about prayer in the society of family. Uh, we, we need to understand that prayer is something which has usefulness to individuals and it is useful in a communal setting. And there are different communal settings, but they're, as I say, the, the, the most basic communal setting would be the family. So Brown wants to talk about family prayer. Uh, he's going to make mention of some other things as we get started here before he moves into family prayer. So question uh, 141. What are some of the kinds of prayer Brown mentions? 
he mentions both the public prayers of the church and the private prayers of individuals. <clears throat> 141b, why does he stay upon the matter of family prayer? Why is he interested in this? And very simply, uh, John Brown says, this family prayer, family worship, is one of the most neglected uh, forms of, of prayer. It is, as things go, more often laid aside by professing believers than taken up. <clears throat> so he's interested in discussing that and why. Uh, so then, 141 C and D. What two things does he intend to show concerning family prayer? <clears throat> the first, he wants to show that it is commanded. It's necessary. And that its omission is therefore sin. The second, he wants to impress upon everyone the, um, the usefulness of profit that can be had through family prayer and the hurt that can come to you through its neglect. Okay, so with that introduction, <clears throat> we're going to go over 24 things that are meant to clear the, this duty of prayer. 24 things to show you that in fact it is commanded, that it would be sin to omit it, that you should be concerned to be involved in it. That you should be uh, very, very um, forward to uh, see yourself uh, as part of this family worship. All right, you want to do this uh, as much as in you lies. <clears throat> So, 142, what's the first thing mentioned to clear up the duty of prayer? He says, think about this. <clears throat> All societies, as societies, should be societies which intend the glory and honor of God. 
and that includes families. Families are societies. Families should be concerned <clears throat> to see the advancing of the glory of God by prayer, by praise. <clears throat> there should be a, a general concern that men engage in uh, they take up the issue of, of family prayer. Family is a society. And although he doesn't get into this here, um, he is insinuating that there are societies beyond the family. Uh, including civil society, and that all societies should be formed on this principle. So in that, you can, you can um, maybe perceive a little bit of the Covenanter flavor in John Brown of Wamfrey. Right, number two, second thing mentioned, number... This is question 143. <clears throat> he notes that if members of distinct families occasionally meeting together have a duty to celebrate the praises of God, to acknowledge his his mercy, to glorify him, and so on. How much more do these families have this obligation uh, when members of one of the same family have occasion to meet together? So I, I think he's he's saying, look, you know, if, if you have an occasion uh, to praise God when you're meeting together as a church, well, that's occasional. Uh, do that maybe a couple of times a week. But families have more opportunity. Families have more. Um, they have more uh, of an occasion uh, because there's there is more occasion when there are members of one and the same family, you know, living together and so on. Uh, there's more occasion for this. Okay, three. The third thing mentioned to clear up the duty of prayer, 144. <coughs> 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 says, if we consider the relation that families have to God, 
then we cannot but uh, read their engagement to this duty. In other words, we can't help but perceive that they are under this duty. So, for example, he points out he's the preserver, nourisher, and protector of families. And, and he, he points to Romans 11.36. If somebody has the Bible, Romans 11.36. Romans 11.36. Romans 11.36. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Everything is... He's the author of the family. <coughs> He's the institutor of the family. He's the one who has made the family from the beginning. And having done so, the idea is he, in fact, is worthy of all this praise and duty of families as the societies which he's instituted. Right? So families have a very peculiar relation to God in that respect. You know, some, uh, some societies aren't as directly uh, traceable in, as far as their origin to God. But certainly the family is. You know, we could we could say the church is and the nation. But uh, that relation, he says, that argues that there is a duty. That God has set the solitary in families. There's a duty now. There's a duty to praise him. There's a duty to uh, seek his glory. All right, and that brings us to the fourth thing mentioned to clear up the duty of prayer, 145. God has made all things for his own glory, and he disposes of all things for his own glory. So, his point is, <clears throat> he has, in fact, made or instituted <clears throat> families for his own glory. That they should glorify him. The men should glorify him, not only as individuals, but in this society, this very basic society, which God has established. He says that um, if you consider that the birds and the beasts preach forth the glory of God, his wisdom and goodness in their kind, why shouldn't the flocks of men 
according to their kind and their capacity. In other words, God has made all of the lower creation to serve him uh, really in a way of, of um, that is instinctive. It, it, they're going to obey his voice, but you know, animals are not, and we've talked about this in a different context, but animals are not serving God reflectively or, or with a conscientious regard for what they're doing. Right, they're serving him um, in, a, in a, what we would consider much more robotic fashion. It's instinctive. A lot of it's instinctive and behavioral. And Brown is saying, look, <coughs> if the lower creation, <coughs> if they know enough to serve this God even though they're not doing so as rational animals, how much more should we, as rational beings, be attuned to, uh, to the requirement that we serve this God? And that kind of segues into the fifth thing that he mentions to clear up the duty of prayer, 146. He says, think about it. The dim light of nature taught the heathens to think on this duty. And he refers to the household gods of the heathen. Laris and Penates. The heathen, the heathen would make sacrifices to these household gods uh, basically beseeching them to look over them to make sure they didn't die you know, to keep them safe and Brown is saying look, if the dim light of nature is telling the heathen pray as a family, pray how much more responsibility falls to those who've been favored with the light of special revelation, like the light of the the Bible, right, the the gospel? <clears throat> the heathen teaches them uh, the the light of nature teaches them to to pray. But they pray superstitiously. Uh, they're really sort of uh, scrambling about in the dark, trying to figure out what to do and how to approach this God. But Brown says, look, if the light of nature is teaching them to do this, if you as a Christian do not engage in family prayer, family worship, The heathen are going to rise up in judgment one day to condemn you for your lack of 
of um, uh, discernment. You had every advantage that they, they did not. And a lot of them were more diligent in seeking the blessings of their household idols than Christians are in seeking the blessing of the true God. And that brings us to the sixth thing mentioned to clear up the duty of prayer, 147. Brown then, I think, is elaborating on that point. He says, look, the very light and law of nature teaches everyone is obliged in a station and relation in the world according to his power to set forth the glory of God. <clears throat> Here's a duty that everyone knows by nature. Nobody can say, I didn't know I was supposed to serve God. They may say, I didn't know who the true God was, and they may not. But no one can say, I didn't understand that I was obligated to the true God. <coughs> And so, um, he says, look, the light of nature taught the king of Nineveh to fast and pray. And there's a bit of that theme throughout Jonah. There's a lot that the light of nature is teaching. You can see what the heathen have gathered. But divine revelation is just teaching them how to do it the right way. Yes. Yeah, the, the heathen are not going to fast and pray to a correct end without that correlating divine revelation. Right? They, they may say, oh, I, I have to worship this God, and, and they, they may understand that in some respect, fasting and prayer, praise, thanksgiving, sacrifice. all these things, sacrifice, all these things are involved. And nature is teaching them that and impressing that on them. Which goes to show that atheism is, is against nature as well. Yes. Atheism, well, that's, you know, again, why the, the Bible says a fool is said in his heart, there is no God. Um, they, they know. Right? And, and in order for them not to know, they have to, to um, not just dumb down their conscience, they actually have to dumb themselves down mentally in order to do that gymnastic they actually have to make themselves stupid which is foolish and for rational creatures to uh, to engage in that kind of, of behavior but anyway he's saying here look <clears throat> if if the light of nature, the law of nature is teaching this, how much more clearly is it shining to us out of Scripture that this is a duty? You know, the heathen didn't miss it, which is why he said in the previous point, 
they're going to rise up in judgment if you do. They're going to know. They're going to know that you were not diligent, right? That you were ignoring uh, the clear divine revelation that you had. You were more concerned about other things. And then on Judgment Day, they're going to say, look, if we had had that, remember what Jesus says about Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. And that's what some of these heathen are going to say on Judgment Day. If we'd had that information, we would have repented. We would have prayed to the true God. We were more concerned with what we didn't know than you are when you have far more revelation, far more light, far more advantage. So Brown says, consider that. Seven. The seventh thing mentioned, clear up the duty of prayer, 148. It says, doesn't Christianity teach that masters of families should devote their families to God? That they should consecrate their families to the service of God? And that goes against the idea, I'll I'll let my children decide what they want to do when they grow older. When Joshua says, me and my house. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Joshua's not a Baptist, right? He's, He's not... Um, just leaving it up to freedom of religion or whatever they want to do is okay with me. And, and actually, he points to a couple of verses here. Uh, you can look at Deuteronomy 20, verse 5. And also, we want to look at the title. He refers to the title of Psalm 30. Deuteronomy 20, verse 5. An officer shall speak unto the people, saying, what man is there that hath built a new house and hath not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. <coughs> Psalm 30. I don't. Uh, Just a, title. Okay. A, a psalm and song at the dedication of the house of David. Yeah. Psalm and song at the dedication of the house of David. So Brown says, look, look at this. He said, you know, here, uh, here we have examples in the Bible. What is this dedication of a house if it's not the master of the house consecrating his family to the divine service? Again, this is something that Christianity teaches. It's something that the special revelation of God uh, specifically enjoins that men would not uh, be lax about this matter. He's saying this is very important. To neglect family prayer, his argument so far is to neglect family prayer, to neglect family worship is to make you and your family to occupy a worse position before God in some respects than the heathen. 
let's look at number eight. The eighth thing mentioned to clear up the duty of prayer, 149. He says, neglecting the duty of family worship is inconsistent with that love to God and to his glory unto which we're called. It says, throughout the Psalms, and it gives a bunch of Psalm uh, verses here, the psalmist is continually calling on everyone and everything in the creation to praise God. To glorify Him. He says, how can you say that you love God? How can you manifest love of God in your heart if you are unwilling to engage in family worship. It's a very serious matter. I guess it's a part of testimony bearing, right? Even if you're, if you're the head of the house, to bear testimony to your own family, correct? There is a testimony bearing element to it, for sure. Um... There is the idea, and he mentions it at this point, that the head of the house ought to be calling on the members of that house to concur with him in the worship of the true God. Again, let's pause here for a moment and reflect upon what he's already said about the heathen. You know, the heathen, throughout history have again and again demonstrated that they are themselves very diligent to call upon God. They don't know who it is that they're addressing, but they're still seeking after God. It's like somebody in a dark room where you, you, you know, there's no lights on, it's blacked out in the room and you're you're feeling about in the dark. That's what the heathen are said to be like. They're in a dark place. They can't see anything. But they're seeking. And he's saying, you know, people in Christian nations, people in places favored with the light of the gospel, you, you don't have has the excuse that these heathen had and they're they're um, they're diligent All right number nine ninth thing mentioned to clear up the duty of prayer 150 uh, the Lord is careful by his instructions and commands to have families kept in a godly order and walk. And what he means is 
he's given them, you know, he's he's given the husband duties with reference to the wife, the wife with reference to the husband, parents to children, children to parents, um, and then, you know, masters and servants and all of that. So he set all of this And he says, what does this mean that he set <clears throat> this kind of order in the family except that he is seeking out of that order, he's seeking a family that will glorify him by praising him and praying unto him. He's peculiarly, this is his argument, he's peculiarly fitted the family as a, as a um, society, as a community, to engage not only individually but corporately in the praise and worship of God. And he says, in fact, if you consider your duties and your responsibilities, husband, wife, children, parents, then you will realize your need of prayer. So that you can do your duty, you can fulfill your obligations with respect to that relation. And that all points to the need for family prayer. All right, number 10. 10th thing mentioned, 151. <clears throat> and I think this is an extremely interesting point to contemplate. <clears throat> he says, look, in the primitive times of the world, at least until the days of Enos in Genesis 4, all the public and solemn worship that God received was in families. Patriarchal, right? Yeah. And he says this primitive domestic worship was... Uh, was not, well, he actually says it was not laid aside by the holy patriarchs because, for example, you know, we, we see in Enoch, um, he walked with God after he got Methuselah 300 years and got sons and daughters. And he says he can't say he walked with God but neglected his worship. There's just no way around that one. He goes on to say, um, do you think that Noah's family was as void of the true worship as all the rest of the families in the world at that time? Of course not. And 
Peter says he was a preacher of righteousness. So he was he was more than that. And he talks about Abraham, he talks about Isaac. All of them. Um, Jacob. All of them clearly are and he, he gives different references here. You know, but I just want to give you a, a little bit of a survey of the kinds of things he references. He talks about them building altars. These are not altars for uh, the public worship of God. There isn't really any public worship going on. These are, these are families which are set apart who are worshiping. But there aren't public gatherings as of yet. So the, the patriarchs don't set aside this primitive uh, this primitive method. He, he, <coughs> he points um, to Jacob <coughs> when he labors to prepare his whole family for worship. He says in Genesis 35, 2 and 3 um, he says unto his household and all that were with him put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean, and change your garments, and let us arise, and go up to Bethel, and I will make there an altar unto God. <clears throat> now he's given other examples of this along the way, from Abraham and Isaac. fact is, they're all doing this. Why are they doing this? Well, because they know that it is necessary for them to maintain the worship of God in their families. They're reforming their families as the heads. They're, they're reforming, they're keeping their families in the faith. You know, they're you, seeking to be faithful in their families. And If you argue from the lesser to the greater, yeah, the it, head it, of the state is, is to do that as well in reforming, correct? Yeah, let, and, and let me just say, there, there's, there is another aspect to this that Brown, I, I think why Brown puts this in, in this book. During the killing times, It was virtually impossible to gather for the public worship of God on numerous occasions. The opportunity for public worship <coughs> was um, occasional. <clears throat> By the end of the killing times, in particular, uh, the number of ministers they had had been reduced uh, nearly to nothing. They're just a couple of people. The Covenanters through all that time maintained stability through family worship and through uh, what they called society meetings where they, several families would get together. Right. They maintained the truth through that period, and even after the Revolution establishment, uh, that continued. Now, Brown, Brown dies before the end of the, the uh, killing times. So this has, I think, very, um, very 
pointed application for their situation. But it has been noted again and again that the more faithful the churches tend to be, the more you're going to find family worshiping practiced among the members. They tend to support one another. And even when there isn't, like during the period of time between the um, revolution and the societies calling John Macmillan, uh, that 16-year period of time, 18-year period of time, um, during that period of time, they maintained, the Covenanters maintained their confession by, by uh, a very vigorous enforcement of family worship in the individual families and by that, that practice of society meetings where they would gather, uh, several families would gather for the purpose of worshiping. So they may not have had or, or had access to uh, the public stated worship of God, but they survived during that period of time. And there have been other places and other periods in the history of the church where like has occurred. All right, let's move on to number... 11. The 11 thing mentioned declared the duty of prayer, 152. <coughs> this is under the law. Talking about Moses here. Families were solemnly to worship God. And he says <clears throat> that worship began with um, Passover. What did they do? They had to strike the, the uh, doorposts of their, ho their homes. Right? Every family was required to eat it apart. There's worship commanded in the family. And he goes on to say, look to at the uh, fourth commandment. Remember thou to sanctify the Sabbath day. And then it talks about the obligation of uh, the master of the house to see that everything is set in order. And so there's a sense in which he's saying family worship precedes even the keeping of the Sabbath, right? It, it, the keeping of the Sabbath presumes family worship in some respect. Right? Your family is already thinking in that kind of, of manner. We, we're worshiping God, and now we're going to worship God uh, in a particular way. Right? That we have uh, a very peculiar obligation that arises. 
All right. Number 12, 12th thing mentioned, declare the duty of prayer, 153. <coughs> he says, look, all the reasons which require that there be a manifest difference placed between Christian families and Muslim families and pagan families tells us that there ought to be this worship of the true God. We are, he's saying, in essence, we are called not simply to have families, but to have Christian families. In distinction from the Muslims. In distinction from the pagans. Christians ought to delight in calling upon the name of the true God. The thirteenth thing mentioned, one fifty four. He references Paul writing to the Colossians. And he says that um, in chapters 3 and 4, Paul is commending Christian duties particularly in familial relations and among the the duties that he enjoins is um, they were to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in the heart. And if you look at commentators on these verses, generally they will acknowledge that uh, Paul's actually admonishing um, Christians in a more private setting than the public worship of God. Because I guess in the public worship, the minister is doing the one admonishing where it would take a, a, a more private setting for each other to admonish each other, correct? Well, there's that aspect of it that would get into like society meetings, but the, the general context for both Colossians and Ephesians where this comes up is really talking about Christian duty generally and moving, it moves from this general Christian duty into discussions of family. And John Brown is saying, look, uh, this general Christian duty, if you think about the admonishment to a general Christian duty, and then 
immediately following on with discussions of familial relations, when those duties that he previously mentioned are not only um, not only would they be able to be performed in the context of the family, there's something peculiarly suitable about the family for doing this. He says that is an argument uh, for family worship. This is part of the duty. If you're a Christian, and he's, he's essentially saying, look, if you're a Christian and you're set in a family, but your Christian duty in the family is calling you to this idea of family worship. And it his his argument. It, this is actually one of the points where he he spends more time explaining what he means because uh, probably because people don't initially look at that and think, oh, that's talking about family worship. But he's saying that the connection of between the two. He refers to Colossians, but I, I think the same connection is there in Ephesians. <clears throat> Paul moves from the one general talk about Christian duty to Christian duty in the family. So there's nothing contrary to that duty. In fact, there's actually a lot that um, would be conducive to doing that duty in the family. All right, let's move on to point 14. 14th thing mentioned, uh, and it's 155. So he says, we find family duties urged in order to the carrying on of prayer, which must be family prayer. So, for example, 1 Peter 3, 7, Likewise, your husbands dwell with them, least some of your wives, according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife, as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Paul says, Defraud not one another, except, uh, except to be with consent for a time. You may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again. Etc. First Corinthians seven five. So he's saying <coughs> uh, that this is not <coughs> this is not simply <coughs> talking about um, uh, your separate prayers as husband and wife or or parent and child but that it, it is presuming 
that there is a family prayer going on. When these things are out of order at at uh, one level, uh, it's going to affect family prayer. It's going to be a hindrance to family prayer. It's not really. Think of it. Think of it this way. <clears throat> If you get into um, an argument with someone, it's probably not going to hinder you from praying, per se. But it is much more likely that it would be a hindrance for you and the person with whom you're having the argument to get together and pray. So that's the idea, I think. So that's why there's a whole idea of leaving your gift at the altar and being reconciled. Yeah, yeah. There, there's, and and he said he's basically, I think, citing these passages which show there's a similar, um, there's something similar that is being enjoined in the family, particularly between husbands and wives. All right, number 15, the 15th thing mentioned, 156. Uh, he says it's recorded of godly masters of families that they've been careful uh, to keep their families fixed to God in worship. And here he cites Joshua 24:15, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And, and <clears throat> in fact, he goes through, <clears throat> he talks about David <clears throat> resolving to order his family so that all things were sure. Uh, the case of Cornelius in Acts 10, Daniel praying with his family in Daniel 6, Job in Job 1, and you know, frankly, like we alluded to this earlier, but um, when you consider what all of these guys are saying, and you consider the uh, the call that is implied, uh, the call to family worship, the uh, enjoining of the duty of family worship that is, is being set forth in, in all of these examples. It's hard to believe that anyone who reads the Bible uh, seriously could be a Baptist and leave their children out. Right, because the, the command to worship, and we see it in all these examples he's listing, it's taking in not only husband and wife, but the children of the family. And 
in microcosm, what you have is, and I think some of the Puritans called it the church in your home. So in, in the church in your home, children are to be instructed and encouraged to worship. Why wouldn't they be? Uh, uh, why wouldn't they be members of the visible church when it's gathered? It's just a, I think there's a big problem there for the Baptists, but they can argue their point. All right, the sixteenth thing mentioned to clear up the duty of prayer, one fifty-seven. He points to Zechariah 12, which is a promise of a special blessing in the day of the Lord's returning to his people, the Jews. Uh, This will be basically, he's talking about the the calling of the Jews uh, prior to the millennium. The prophecy is that each family shall mourn apart. And that is a prophecy that they will begin to engage in family worship. And then from family worship, the, the nation. Yeah. Mm. Family worship. From family worship, you have both the constituent elements of mm. the church and the nation. Because the family is what makes up the church and the nation. Yeah. So this is why this is important. <clears throat> right, we're going to look at another verse here in a minute. Um, this is for the 17th thing mentioned to clear up the duty of family prayer is that God has uh, threatened against families that he's threatened wrath against families which neglect the duty of family prayer. And he points to Jeremiah 10, 25 and Psalm 79, uh, 6. So I'm going to look at those two verses. Jeremiah 10, 25 Psalm 79, 6. Jeremiah 10, 29. Or 25. Last verse. Jeremiah 10, 25. Pour out thy fury upon the heathen that know thee not, and upon the families that call not on thy name. For they have eaten up Jacob, and devoured him, and consumed him, and have made his habitation desolate. Psalm 79, verse 6. Pour out thy wrath upon the heathen that have not known thee, and upon the kingdoms that have not called upon thy name. You think that's what happens to Eli with his sons? You think that was, is that any reason to believe that he wasn't engaging in family worship? He wasn't correcting them. You know, there was, there was a problem. <clears throat> Some kind of failure there. 
So, the point of these verses is that um, God is threatening wrath against those who don't worship in their families. And he says, look, if you want to take that second verse and say, well, he's talking about nations or tribes. He says, yeah, but they're made up of families. And that means that they, too, ought to be engaged in this. I mean, you um, you can't charge a whole nation if they're not all guilty. That's why God is oftentimes delayed judgment on nations because of the people that were in there that were yeah. holding fast. That's why God wants Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Hmm. Right. 18, the 18th um, thing mentioned. 159. Uh, and that is, we find whole families devoted solemnly to Christ by baptism. And if so, then, yeah, here, every Christian family should be a little Christian church in order to the solemn worship of God. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole, um, the whole discussion of infant baptism, but we do have, <clears throat> in the New Testament, I think... Um, we have several, well, maybe as many as eight examples of household baptism. And that is generally, that's um, taken to be an indication there was infant baptism because uh, household was defined not just by, say, a husband and a wife, but everyone who lived in that that um, dwelling. Even like the slaves and stuff as well? Yeah. And he also points out, you know, we have examples of churches in families. That are that are mentioned in in um, several places. So there there's a lot that can be said for this idea, you know, the, of the family being a little church. Uh, actually, we can look at a couple of those verses: Romans sixteen five, Second Corinthians sixteen nineteen. Romans 16, verse 5. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Salute my well-beloved Epinetus, who is the firstfruits of Achaia unto Christ. 2 Corinthians 16, 19. Corinthians 16, 19. 2 Corinthians 16. Uh, Probably 1 Corinthians. I, yeah, it should be 1 Corinthians. Shouldn't it? Almost certainly. That's 
we're reading yet. First Corinthians 16, verse 19. The churches of Asia salute you. Quill and Priscilla salute you much in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Yeah. <clears throat> so, um, there are other examples of this that, that um, he gives, but I think it's enough to make the point that the Bible has uh, language that, that enforces this idea that there are to be little churches in the houses of the faithful. Right, 19, the 19th thing mentioned to clear up the duty of prayer, 160. So, Christian communion in a special manner calls uh, calls for this duty at the hands of Christians living together and having these kinds of advantages. And so even more so when they're all members of one family. Right? In other words, when um, when Christians engage in communion with one another, fellowship, those occasions are marked by prayer, praise, thanksgiving, and he's saying how much more in the case of a family. This is what Christian communion entails. All right, the 20th thing mentioned to clear up the duty of prayer, number 161. He says, look, it can't be denied, but families are capable of mercies and favors at the hand of God, as well as judgments and plagues because of sin. And he says, this is true of nations as well, right? So, his point is, if this is possible, uh, and clearly it is, that is itself a call to prayer in that unit, right? The family, or the nation. You have reason to give thanks to God for blessings which are peculiar to your family, but common to the members of the family. You've reasoned to pray that judgments would be removed that are peculiar to the family, but common to members of the family. And so that's why he's saying this is an indication that there ought to be prayer in the family. And 21, the 21st thing mentioned, clear up the duty, 
162. This is think about the general commands for praying everywhere. How often does the apostle say, pray on every occasion, always be praying, praying always with thanksgiving, etc., etc.? He gives a number of verses to that effect. He says, look, if that's the case, then this just enforces the duty when you have singular advantages, occasions, and opportunities. In other words, he's saying you have more of those in a family than you do in other social or societal settings. Kind of going back to the whole idea that all men are required to pray. Um, It kind of goes against the whole idea of, you know, separation of church and state. Like, you know, a, a, a president shouldn't be, you know, a Christian or shouldn't impose Christianity where he is bound to pray. Yes. He's bound to pray for himself and for his nation. And the nation is bound to pray you know, for him that he, would, uh, that he would govern according to Christian principles. And if he can't... This is a, a little bit different subject, but from uh, the covenanting point of view, uh, what we have to say is if... We're praying for a magistrate, uh, not a Christian, under an immoral constitution of government. We're not praying simply that they prosper. Uh, We have to pray that they they would prosper in what is right according to the Word of God, Uh, that we pray that they would be converted. Uh, that they would become explicitly engaged to uh, doing what Christ would command and and all of that. However, th- that going back to the general command to pray everywhere, one thing it does point out very importantly is this... Um, the idea of communal or societal prayer. Uh, not only are we to pray alone, but this is a case where when we pray together, we are, in a sense, bearing one another's burdens. And, and we're doing it in this way. We are encouraging one another mutually to pray. The flesh resists prey. Uh, this is a bearing one another's infirmities, in a sense, uh, as well as encouraging one another to duty. Right. So there, there are both aspects of this edifying going on, and you know, occasional in terms of uh, singular advantage, occasion, and opportunity. You have to say that. 
that is most the case in families. Right, the families of believers. Alright. 22nd thing mentioned, clear up the duty of prayer. Right, number 163. <coughs> he says, neglect of this is neglecting mercy, the mercy, love, and kindness of God offered to the family in their access to God as a family. So you neglect prayer. You know, he says you're neglecting the mercy, love, and kindness of God, which is being offered as a family. Right? God's offers are not only to you individually, but as a family. Yeah. It isn't, doesn't the scripture say that you know, like a person who won't provide for his family is worse than an infidel? Yeah. And if you won't pray with your family and for your family, yeah, that's that would be. I think you probably take that principle, and and Brown would probably agree that that is a very bad thing. Twenty-third thing mentioned to clear up the duty of prayer. <clears throat> One sixty-four. <clears throat> <clears throat> uh, he says, and this is uh, families must seek God's blessing to give uh, or blessing to and give thanks for their meat. And he says, and if you're to give thanks for your daily food, shouldn't you then for other favors as well? In other words, if, you're, if your mealtime represents in your family sort of a special call to prayer, isn't it teaching you that you should be praying for and about other things in your family than just food. And he's saying, you know, we are told to pray uh, before and after our meals, right? To to pray uh, to pray for a blessing and to give thanks after. And he's referring to that. You know, a lot of people are kind of taken by surprise, you know, and you, after a meal you pray. But the fact is that all of the um, early Reformed uh, directories for worship and, and uh, forms of prayers and so on had guidelines for praying before and after meals. I think it was John Brown of Haddington who said that uh, it was far worse uh, to neglect praying after a meal than to neglect praying before a meal because when you pray before the meal you're seeking a blessing for yourself. When you pray afterward you're returning thanks to God for what he's given. So Brown is saying, take that principle, <clears throat> and he clearly agrees with it. He, he's under, he understands that clearly. <clears throat> Brown says, take that and 
Apply that now to everything in your life. And in families, there are, again, more opportunities, more occasions, more advantages for them coming together to pray about other things than just the food. All right, 24th thing mentioned, 165, this is the last thing that we're going to cover tonight, today. Um, masters of families have to teach their families. And so they have to pray with them. This is kind of on the principle of... Uh, what Jesus did with his disciples in giving them the Lord's Prayer. It was a common uh, theme in discipleship that the Master would, uh, would bestow some kind of prayer to the disciples. Brown is saying that that same that same principles at work here. <clears throat> You're being called to teach your family, and a part of being a teacher is teaching them to pray. Were the instances where, for instance, like Jacob prays for his family on his deathbed, and he, you know he prays, for, he gives the blessings. Is that one of these instances of, of family, of family prayer as as he's ahead, or is that more of an uh, inspiration, like you know, the spirit, you know, moving? I think so. you have you have a couple of things going on there, but in terms of what we're talking about, yes, there there has to be uh, there's some element of. Of family worship or family prayer going on in that in all those and precisely because there those occasions are limited to members of the family uh, we can see that you know there there is knowledge of family worship they are engaged in it and they're very much <clears throat> interested in promoting it right up until the very end. That's a sign of perseverance then. Yeah, they're persevering in it, but they're, they're also, in a sense, you know, when they do that, what are they doing? They're leaving a dying testimony mm -hmm. on behalf of family worship. Mm -hmm. right, so that's something that uh, we can consider as well here. Right, so the advantages to prayer uh, are going to be what we're going to cover in the second part of this chapter. We'll be looking at what he says are the advantages of the prophet in engaging in family prayer. But those 24 uh, reasons that we've gone over, the, the, the things mentioned, are things which are mentioned specifically for the purpose of uh, stirring us up to pray, understanding that it is not just a, a recommendation, it's not just a, some added level of spirituality, 
but it's actually a command. All right, so next time we're going to continue with the uh, profit and benefit of, of family worship.